Hi, everyone. This is Connor Gilsonen, and you're listening to the All Things Off podcast. On this show, I talk to creators, researchers, founders, and advocates who are moving the ball forward on usable security and privacy. We discuss how they got to where they are today and what they're currently working on. Who are they trying to help and what keeps them motivated to overcome challenges along the way? The goal, as always, is for the rest of us to learn from their experiences and go on to promote usable security and privacy within our own projects and organizations. Joining me today is Ashley Fowler, the project lead for Usable Tools, a project by Internews that connects at-risk communities around the world with developers of open source privacy and security tools. The goal is to make sure that these tools are more localized and usable. Ashley, thanks for taking the time to come on as a guest today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Connor. I'm really excited to be here as well. Yeah, so when I first came across Usable Tools, it really jumped out at me as just having a fantastic mission. And like I mentioned in passing in the introduction, it's a project within Internews, and Internews is a new organization that I hadn't heard of before. So I guess just to set the context for everyone listening, can you provide some high-level background of usable tools, and also what is Internews and what's the connection there? Of course, yes. So Internews has been around for quite some time. Um, It's a fairly large organization. It's an international nonprofit that really focuses on access to information. And so trying to make sure that individuals have access to trusted, high-quality information that allows them to make informed decisions about their lives and about the decisions that they're making. That's kind of Internews as a whole. I would say Something else to stress about Internews is it's really a, kind of a local first approach. And so every action, every project of Internews is really focused on making sure that local voices are uplifted, that local voices are represented and really taking the lead. I think obviously Usable fits into this really nicely. As you mentioned, you, you gave the, the high level of, of Usable. The point is really to try and make these privacy and security tools that at-risk communities rely on, on their day-to-day lives making those more usable and more accessible so that they can access that information, so that they can make those informed decisions, so that they can protect their information, they can feel private and secure online. Unquestionably, there's much more behind this entire project than identify an open source project that seems to have a lot of GitHub stars, for example, try to get in touch and throw some money at it. It's much more rigorous, it's much more evidence-based, and there's a whole process behind it. And before we dig into the meat of understanding how this project works, I'm curious a little bit of the background. How did the project come to be, the original people involved or the original motivation that really propelled it forward? Yes, no, that's a great question. I think it really gets at the heart of Usable. This originally came from from interview staff that were experiencing or seeing firsthand what happens when tools aren't usable. And so we had several staff members who continue to be on staff today um, and are involved in the project to this day. John Kempfield is a great example. I think it wouldn't have been possible without John and without John's experiences. But essentially, he saw during a training that folks were moving away from a tool. And in fact, a tool that he had just installed and just trained folks on. And so the fact that you know, within 24 hours, they were already you know, either uninstalling the, the app or the tool or just deciding not to use it. For him, it was a very eye-opening experience of if the tool isn't usable, then folks simply are not going to use it. And also, if it's not something that's common in the community. And so John, being the optimist that he is, instead of just, you know, thinking like, okay, we'll stop training on those tools, you know, he took a different approach and he thought instead, what if we 
actually try and improve those tools because they are the most secure. They are you know, the tools that are going to keep people safe online and folks should be using them. So instead of asking folks to, to use a tool that is cumbersome or difficult or complicated, let's find a way to meet them in the middle so they can continue to use the tool, but the tool will be accessible and usable and, and more user-friendly overall. It's a fantastic mission. And the fact that it's working primarily with open source tools, you know, companies have teams and resources and ways to focus on these things. But a lot of the open source projects, perhaps they get some funding from organizations or foundations or nonprofits. But a lot of the time, it's people just working nights and weekends and things like that. And they might not know about some of these usability problems, or they might not have a background or an expertise understanding the best way to tackle it. So instead of just abandoning the tool, trying to figure out ways to work with these developers to improve it is just so fantastic. I'm particularly curious about your background. How did you come to get involved in usable tools? And what pulled you into this focus on usable security and privacy? Yes, yeah, so I've had kind of an, an interesting journey to, to the tech space. I don't have any background in, in tech, and it wasn't something that I was previously really interested in. But it's definitely a passion that I've developed over the past two years working on this project. I did have a, a history of working with at-risk communities. And so for me, that was a, a natural bridge of I was seeing firsthand the struggles that folks were, were facing in the field and on the ground and really on those front lines. And these are the folks who have very valuable information very sensitive information. You know, they're trying to communicate in secure ways and it's it's sometimes difficult to do that. You know, I had around 10 years experience working with primarily LGBTQI communities. And as you know, those are some of the most marginalized communities, particularly in certain areas of the world. For me, I, I saw those experiences. And then when I saw this opening at Internews, specifically working on this project, it was incredibly interesting because it allowed me to continue to serve these communities and at-risk populations but through a completely different lens. And so for me, I, I still continue to learn something new every single day. Again, two years in, I feel like this is, is certainly a passion of mine and something that I am very interested in and trying to make you know, not just tools, but tech in general more accessible for these communities and, and digital security at large is something that I'm really interested in continuing to pursue. Just a thanks off the bat. I mean, one of the biggest benefits of diversity is this multiple points of view, multiple experiences, and the tools that are being developed are being developed for people. And at the end of the day, if they're not usable by the people, if there are barriers, we need people with your background, we, the the tech community. And so it's just so admirable for you to take your experience there and try to help tech at large. It's a really fantastic mission. Yeah, I often like to to say that another way to frame usable is really giving at-risk communities a seat at the design and development table that is usable at its core, is it's really trying to give folks the access so that they can actually influence the design and the development of the tools that they're using every day. What are some other types of groups that you might work with? You had mentioned your specific background. Is there a particular criteria or character for a group that Usable tends to work with? Is it certain types of at-risk populations? Is it journalists? Is it political activists? Yeah, I would say, honestly, we've kind of run the gamut when it comes to, to at-risk communities. And obviously, it um, is highly dependent on the location. So, for example, in some countries, simply just being a woman makes you an at-risk community. The communities that we work with have varied depending on the region or even the country that we're working in. 
but that is something that I also really love about Usable is that it can be adapted and scaled to fit the local context. And so we're also working with a really incredible set of trainers across the, the globe. So for us, we've been able to really rely on these trainers who have existing existing relationships built on trust. And so whereas it might be more difficult for an outsider to, to meet with these communities and, and get them to trust us to share this this sometimes sensitive information, you know, they're talking about the threats that they face, they're talking about their specific needs and, you know, how they're operating, how they're running their programs, that can be sensitive information. And so instead of sharing it with someone like myself, who isn't necessarily embedded in that community, they're sharing it with a trusted trainer who has been with them long term and continues to, to advise and guide them throughout their journey. And so I can also say that this project is is so dependent on on the great relationships that we have with digital security trainers. I can definitely see the benefit of having that trust relationship in place and I know this is actually one of one of the key pillars of how usable works with your process and you had touched a little bit on that with what you had just shared but can you start to give a little more detail once we we dig into the process here help us understand how Usable approaches this problem, who do you work with, and what are some of the phases in order to go from identifying a community and a tool they might be using all the way to actually having some impact on the development of that tool? Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about how we we functioned originally under the project. And so the goal there was really bringing all of our key communities into one space, one physical space together. And so for me, when I'm talking about our key communities, I'm really talking about three core groups. Well, I guess four, actually. So one being the end users themselves, two being digital security trainers, three being the open source tool developers, or sometimes another representative from a tool team. And then finally, some design or user experience experts. And so under that first phase of usable, it was really, again, bringing all of those folks together. And we would have the trainer introduce a tool or a concept, walk the participants through that tool while the developer was sitting there watching users either understand or struggle with their tool. Maybe even for the first time, seeing people who they don't know directly use their tool in a more organic scenario. Exactly, yes. And a lot of tool teams or tool developers, they you know are based in the West. They have a, a certain type of experience that often is very different from the lived experience of, of those users who are relying on their tools. And so I think this was a, a very transformative experience. And we did see a lot of success under that model. The issue there was that it wasn't super scalable. It's very difficult to get a, a developer out to every training or even to just some trainings. That's still, it, it required some funding. It required time, as you mentioned earlier. A lot of the tools that we're working with, they are very, very small teams. Many of them are working you know, as volunteers. And so they wouldn't be able to leave their, their nine to five job, if you will, to attend these, these gatherings more regularly. Under the second phase of work, we really started to think about kind of how do we scale this approach where we continue to collect that feedback from at-risk users, but just something, a way that's more feasible and, and can be replicated more easily. Through that, we identified trainers as kind of this key intermediary between the at-risk users and the open source tool teams or tool developers. And so once we'd made that kind of acknowledgement, again, for all of the reasons that I mentioned before, if they have existing relationships with these communities, they've built the trust. They often are also a bit more tech-oriented. 
you know, they might not be developers themselves, but they can understand at least the basics. And anyone who's had a conversation with a developer will know that sometimes it sounds like they're speaking a different language. So asking an, an average end user to you know, adapt the way that they speak or to understand the, the technical speak of, of a developer or a tool team can be a bit overwhelming. But a trainer is a bit more uniquely situated to, to at least cope with that better. They have experience doing the translating between the techie and the real average users who are out there actually using the tools on a regular basis. Exactly. Yes. Once we had identified this, this community, community being trainers as a core group, we organized a, a series of workshops where we really focused on upskilling these trainers on several core principles. So one, just introducing them to what does it mean to, to focus on the user experience and this concept of, of human-centered design, quite literally just placing humans at the center of the design process. So every decision that you're making as a developer or as a tool team should be based around, you know, how does this serve my users and how does this serve the end user? So we introduced them to those concepts. We then introduced them to and co-created with them, I should say, a series of activities that can actually be directly integrated into an existing digital security training that would allow them to either collect valuable information about the users or about the specific community or tool-specific feedback. So recommendations, advice on translation, icon, feedback, kind of it varied depending on the tool. And then finally, we also taught them a bit on just how do you communicate with developers? You know, where do you find out about a tool? You know, is the tool still being maintained? Again, GitHub is a, a very scary or intimidating platform for, for non-technical users. And so we tried to really break that down and explain just very simple ways that an average person can use GitHub. And instead of having to dig through lots of places, it's finding those, those key areas where you can find useful information fairly easily, as well as a submit issues either via GitHub or sometimes it's you know, directly via email, in person, however you might be able to, to contact the developer. But so we, we did those, those five workshops that were really focused on upskilling these digital security trainers in five different regions of the world. And then after that, we opened up a, a small pool of funding for them to actually implement what they had learned and what we had talked about during those workshops. And it was great for us because it allowed us to kind of pilot those activities. We were able to adapt them over the five workshops. Um, and we are soon launching the official guidebook that compiles all of those activities. So essentially, any digital, secu digital security trainer anywhere in the world will be able to pick up these activities and facilitate them hopefully fairly easily and integrate them into their existing trainings. Well, that's great. And is that resource something that will be freely and publicly available for these trainers around the world? Yes, it will. And we are also working hard to make sure that all of the templates are designed in Google Slides. Huge shout out to Soraya, our friend over at Electronic Frontier Foundation. And yeah, that way, so the, the resources will be easily adapted or localized depending on the context. And so this funding that you were able to use to help upskill these trainers and the activities that they refined and learned about through these different phases that you had executed with them. After that, you know, culminating in this future release of a publication that can be more widely used, what was the next step for you working with the original trainers who had helped to pilot these programs? How did you go from there 
to interacting with some of the tool developers. In each case, it looked a little bit different, but we were able to provide a kind of range of support to the tool teams themselves. And I think the most notable is through what we call the UX Fund, which is a dedicated pool of funding that is available to open source privacy and security tool developers to actually implement changes that have been recommended by at-risk users, particularly through that usability and accessibility lens. And so obviously it was a not an, an infinite amount of funding, so we weren't able to work with every open source tool. So we did, in other cases, provide different types of support. So sometimes it was simply introducing a tool developer to a particular community or a trainer in this case so that they have access to that valuable information. Also inviting them to events. We hold a, a biannual large gathering that we call the UX Forum. That's another great space where we're bringing together, again, all of these communities into one physical space where it's, it's large enough that you get a very diverse set of experiences and, and expertise in, in one room, but it's intimate enough that you actually do make those personal connections. And so I know a lot of trainers have, have met developers there and continue to maintain those relationships so that they have that full feedback loop of they take feedback to the developer and then the developer can come back and say, you know, I'm trying this. Would this work with your communities? Full circle. Yeah, that's fantastic. So quick recap to make sure I'm following the story here. So initially, you were taking an approach where you would get everyone physically in the same room. The trainers would be there, some members of the at-risk community would be there, and ideally, the development team or the developer would be there and be able to interact and the developer could observe. And there was some really great learning from that experience, but you then wanted to scale it up. And so then you worked with the trainers to upskill them, provide them some resources, working with the communities that they had a trust relationship with. And then after you could abstract some of the learning there, translating that into coordinating with the open source developers themselves. Yes. Theoretically, all of these things are happening simultaneously. Our our timing got off on this last round, but I think that is the dream that these developers and tool teams are able to work with the trainers that we have upskilled. And so it's Internews' role is a bit of a, a matchmaker, if you will. So introducing those communities. And we've had tremendous support from, from design and user experience partners, such as Simply Secure and OK Thanks. Those are, are two notable organizations working in this space. And so I think you also alluded to this earlier of, of tool teams not always having a full staff. So even if they do receive this feedback, you know, what do they do with that? Um, it's really hard for them to to make that into concrete, actionable steps forward. And so these, these design and, and user experience partners of ours have really helped push that work forward and making, making sure that it, those recommendations translate into actual changes in the tools. And we've also worked with an amazing accessibility partner based in Mexico. They're called Accessibility Lab. Um, they went ahead and did a full audit, both websites and of the tools for all of our UX fund grantees under this last round of the UX fund. So another way to really focus on on the accessibility component here, because if it's not compatible with a screen reader, then your tool is automatically not accessible for a large population um, or for people living with disabilities. All the resources that are available through usable tools for the developers of these projects who might not have experience or understand how to best capitalize on the feedback is great. It's not just, here's some feedback, good luck. It's, here's some feedback, let's work together. We can provide you 
these resources and these connections and have the best chance possible to actually see an improvement come out the other side. Exactly. Yes, I definitely, I personally view it as a, a long-term engagement. Even if we're not able to provide funding, you know, there are other types of support that we can we can provide. And sometimes it is just an introduction. Sometimes it's just an invite to an event. But one of my personal favorite things to do is we call them an Ask Me Anything session with developers. Anytime we have folks gathered, you know, trainers and users, just having one of our, our developers call in and, you know, a quick introduction, telling about their background, it really, it humanizes the, the entire process. It helps the developer really get to know the users, but it also helps the users understand, wow, there is like a face behind this tool that I use every day. And usually very few faces. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we've talked a couple of times about the few faces, the fact that a lot of these tools are maintained by small teams or often just individuals and sometimes in their, their own free time. So if someone were in that situation and their tool was being used by one of these at-risk communities and they really wanted to see some improvement or some change and this feedback process kind of started, is there a specific example of someone that you've worked with that can kind of contextualize some of the interaction and uh, some of the su success for a specific project? Yes, I think at this point there are, are several, but again, one of our, our favorite stories to tell is Mailvelope, which is uh, a tool that allows folks to send encrypted emails. Browser extensions you know, integrates nicely with, with most web clients. And Thomas was actually, he's the lead developer of this project, and he attended one of our early sessions where we were bringing everyone into the, into the space. And so he was one of our early guinea pigs of, of witnessing firsthand users interacting with his tool. And at that time, there was not an option to encrypt attachments as part of, of Mailvelope. And so Thomas realized that trainers and users weren't viewing Mailvelope as a viable option simply because it was missing this critical workflow. And so from that, Thomas, you know, immediately went back, started working on that. And now Mailvelope does have that as an option. It is a feature that he added, obviously something that he continues to, to work on to this day. And we're proud to continue to partner with him on that work. It's a very concrete example of seeing firsthand a struggle and knowing that users weren't going to use his tool just because of this one, one feature. Not, not a small thing, but still something that he could fix. And, and he did. I have personally used Mailvelope in the past. Uh, I used to work for a startup that focused on encrypted email. And so being pretty familiar with the tools in that space, I had used Mailvelope way back in the day when it worked. And then I forget how much time went by, maybe a year or two, I used it again. And there was this remarkable difference in the user experience and the onboarding and things were clearer. And I strongly suspect it was probably during this time when Thomas was working and capitalizing on feedback from working with you guys. I hope so. Is that just the one situation where Mailvelope was able to get feedback and do something concrete by introducing this encrypted attachment feature? Or is there an ongoing relationship that you had talked about? And is it being involved in capitalizing continuously on feedback? Or what is the relationship like going forward for someone who has applied to usable tools and is accepted? I think I mentioned this previously, and I, I do stand by this. I really see it as a, a long-term relationship. Even those tools that we funded under the first round, 
we continue those relationships. You know, we're still in contact. We're still inviting them to events. We are still collecting feedback whenever we have the opportunity. And we're certainly sharing that feedback back with folks. I think the dream would be to to continue that full-fledged partnership where there's continued funding, where there is that constant flow of feedback. I think that's something that most developers struggle with is having that sustained channel of feedback that is, you know, quality feedback, not the unhelpful pieces of feedback that they can't really do much about. But again, those concrete, actionable things, recommendations even of how to, to make an improvement, not just a critique of, of something that a user doesn't like. And so again, for me, that really is the heart of Usable. Is It's not just one-off feedback. It's really about a feedback loop. If the goal was just getting feedback, that's something that you know, Internews could have come in, collected a bunch of feedback, shared it with the developers, and we're finished. But I think instead, it's really it's about expanding the pool of, of trainers who have the skills to do this themselves. Again, because they are also uniquely positioned to do so. But it's also upscaling our partners like OK Thanks that I mentioned before. Of They're a design and user experience group that has previously or historically worked mainly with, with one kind of core suite of open source tools. But through this project, our goal was really to, to build their capacity so that they can be a leader in this space and, and continue these feedback loops as well. So for me, it's, it's not about that one-off feedback, which can be helpful. But it's really about those relationships that result and will result in continuous feedback loops that are beneficial for both sides. And so what are some of the concrete things that the usability audit or the feedback of working directly with these usability groups manifests as? For Mailvelope, was Thomas able to work with some of the UX people to figure out the best way that attachments should work? Or is there another concrete example that you could share? Yes, I think there are many examples throughout the, the life of the project. I think sometimes it has to do with like the onboarding process. So for example, we have our, our team at OKThanks who was able to do a bit of user testing, uh, light user testing, where they're just seeing, you know, for first-time users, where are the roadblocks? Where are they getting stuck? Where are those points of confusion or pain points, as we call them? And instead of just going back to the developers and saying, you know, Onboarding is a huge issue. They, they download it, they set it up, but then they have no idea what comes next. You know, that's not particularly helpful. Instead, our partners, again, like OK Thanks and like Accessibility Lab, they do this assessment, they do this testing, both with people with disabilities and with at-risk users, and then they actually turn that feedback into the actionable next steps. So in this case that I'm referring to, it ended up resulting in, in an onboarding guide. Or sometimes it's you know changing the colors of your website so that it is accessible for people with color blindness. The recommendations obviously range depending on on the tool and the particular context, but I think that is a key role that the design and, and user experience partners are able to provide, and they play that role very well in taking that raw feedback, synthesizing it, and turning it into actionable items that can be accomplished hopefully fairly easily by the developers. I really enjoyed your example about an onboarding guide. Being a developer, having worked with many other developers, the stereotype is that developers like writing code and they don't like writing docs or other things like that. But the reality is if even another developer comes to your tool and maybe it's an API, they need to know how it works. What's the motivation? Why should I use it? How's the best way to use it? But for a tool focused for end users, the onboarding experience is critical, and that includes much more than just the in-app tutorials and getting set up, but people typically need some more background. And 
things that fall outside of writing code are a super important part of a project. And I can speak from experience that for an open source project where you only have a limited amount of time and hours, it's very easy to overlook things outside of the code where maybe the motivation for the developer to scratch an itch or something is just write some code and do something fun. But once more people start using it and it really is having an impact on their lives, you need to start considering the scope of the project and things outside of the code base. Yes, and I think that for us, we definitely realized that early on. Of it's not always just throwing money at a problem. You have to be you know, strategic about, about how you're thinking or how you're considering next steps. And so for some of our tool teams, it didn't make sense for, for the folks currently working on the project to create that documentation. You know, it wasn't where their interests lied. It wasn't you know, a skill that they were you know, looking to develop or, or to, to work on. And so instead, we provided them funding so that they could contract someone who was experienced in documentation writing. And so it resulted in you know, an excellent guide that's useful for, for the tool and for the team, but didn't take away from, from what the developers were actually interested in doing. And not to mention, they have a million other things at any given moment that they are working on and that they're prioritizing. And so... For us, we, we often had to get creative with the UX fund and, and think about how we could use it and really maximize those funds. Yeah, and creativity is not just the main goal there, but I also love that you highlighted that you know maybe a developer is not the best person to write documentation that's intended for a mass audience and explaining something clearly. That is a, a particular skill set, and there are people out there who focus and are experts at communicating, breaking down complex subjects and presenting them in a straightforward way. And especially if the developer's not interested, that's a, a pretty clear-cut case. But even if they are interested and maybe just don't have that skill set yet, contracting out and hiring and working with someone to develop that skill set is in and of itself a really valuable path forward. Yes, no, and we've seen some of our best results when we were able to, to do that matchmaking. And even in some cases, the developers came to us already with someone else in mind. They didn't need us to introduce them to someone, you know, to a designer or to, to a user experience expert. Again, it depends on the tool and on the team, but uh, we've seen we, both versions of that, of, of tool teams actually coming and saying, we enjoy working with this designer. We simply need funds to continue that work. And so we're happy to step in and, and support where we can. And so like any project, I'm sure it's not all rainbows and everything works out all the time. Are there any challenges that jump out at you as being recurring? Are there any big challenges that are a focus of most projects that you work on? I think for me, it's just, it's always the limited resources. We meet so many incredible people on both sides, you know, developers, trainers, and everyone is, they're passionate about this. They're already, you know, giving it 150%, but often they're they don't have funding to continue the work or they have very limited funding. And so they're having to, to work with those competing priorities. And sometimes it's human resources. A lot of our, our trainers mentioned that at the end of the day, the goal of a digital security training is to make sure that the user understands a concept or understands a tool so that they can stay safe online. The end goal is hardly ever, if ever, to collect feedback. For them, if they were able to have someone else in the back of the room, just in like an observer role or a note-taking role, that would really be transformative. But obviously, to have the, the resources and to have the funds to actually pay someone to document the user experiences that they're, they're seeing throughout this training, that's usually not something that folks have funding for. I think 
that's a big challenge. And we've mentioned it many times about the the tool teams that are understaffed, under resourced. And so it's for me the biggest challenge has been watching these incredibly talented people try and balance all of these competing priorities with such limited resources. I will say it's probably been the biggest challenge, but also I've been incredibly impressed with just what they've been able to accomplish with so little. Even from the the very small funding pool that we offered to, to the trainers, we were imagining some would do, you know, one, two trainings. Some of them were organizing five, some ten training with less than five thousand dollars. Quite impressive what they were able to accomplish with with such little little grants and, and little contracts. So it was very, very impressive. Talking about lack of resources, one of the things we had talked about offline in terms of lack of something is the lack of metrics and analytics that a lot of these tools have. And because they're not built by companies who have resources, who are looking to track every single thing you do, and also particularly because they are security and privacy tools where people are much more sensitive to the information they might be sharing, a lot of these developers are just putting together a tool, putting it out there, and they don't have any insight into how it's working. There's no click metrics being sent back. And that's why this feedback, one primary reason this feedback is so valuable is they're kind of blind. They don't have any data to go off of. Yes. No, I think that that is something that we see, again, across the community of there are very few ways to to collect that data in a privacy-respecting way. It is something that, that Internews is going to be exploring in the next year or so. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what comes out of out of our initiatives around that, and particularly working with Guardian Project. They have an initiative as well that, that's focused on how do you actually collect valuable metrics in a privacy-respecting way. And so I don't have a lot of answers right now, but come back in a couple years, and hopefully Internews and Guardian Project will have, have great recommendations about moving forward. But it, it certainly is a, a barrier right now of balancing privacy and security with just really not understanding or not knowing the users. Yeah, in my PhD program right now, I'm learning quite a bit about some of the techniques that are being discussed that are either newer or have been proven a bit in terms of how to protect the privacy of people when you're studying either sensitive data or trying to send metrics like in this use case. And so I know there's a lot of people interested in trying to solve this problem and just applaud everyone for working on that, it's super important to understand how these tools are working so we can make them better, but at the same time, making sure that we don't violate the privacy of the people who are using the tool. So that's a key thing. And it's really exciting to hear that you're working with the Guardian Project, usable tools, trying to see how you can help move that forward as well. Yes, excited to see what comes out of that. I will say that um, in the meantime, in an attempt to make sure that the tool teams and developers do have a better sense of who their users are and again, a more scalable way. We've developed user personas. We're obviously not the, the only folks who are, are designing and developing these personas, but we do have a, quite, a, quite a nice collection on the usable website, uh, just usable.tools, where we've, I think now around 25 personas from, from five different regions around the world. And they're really just these great snapshots of real users, um, they're obviously a compilation. They're not based on, on a single person, but I think they do capture real needs and, and real threats and real questions and, and the real experiences of these users. And so for us, it's been really useful to share these with developers, both open source and those in the private sector, of helping them understand 
who actually is using their tool, how they're using the tool, and why they feel the need to use the tool. That's great. Another resource available for people to check out on the usable website, and certainly we'll link directly to that in the show notes so that people can follow up. Can you tell me a little bit more about these personas? I know people who have experience working with user experience research, user design, things like this, might be a little more familiar with this idea of a persona, but I know a lot of developers who this might be a new concept. Can you just dig into that a little bit and help explain some of the benefits of what a persona is and how it can be used? Yes, yeah. So I think for me, the persona really is it's a an anonymous profile of a user. And again, not one specific person. The goal is never to to be able to identify who the persona is about directly, but it should capture those those real needs, those real threats, and the real experiences. And so, for us here at the Usable Project, it's really a chance to to allow those at risk communities that are a bit more guarded. You know, they're probably not going to reach out directly to a developer mainly because of the trust issue, but also, just they want to keep their concerns private, and they do understand that they're they're in dangerous situations. So, you know, a gay man living in Bangladesh isn't going to be able to freely talk about his experience with with a developer or with someone from a tool team. And so, a persona really allows them to communicate those needs and to communicate the questions that they may have or the needs that they have with the tool teams in a safe and anonymous way. For me, I think personas are they're helpful in any sort of user research or or any sort of uh, human-centered design process, but they're particularly effective when we're working with at-risk communities because they can't often tell their stories publicly. And so this allows them to, to still, again, have that seat at the table and, and have a, a voice in this process without necessarily identifying themselves or putting themselves in danger. I can definitely see the value in developers familiarizing themselves with these personas to try to have that empathy and relate more directly to these experiences that they might not have ever encountered themselves. I'm on the site right now. I'm looking at an example of a persona. You have one from, you know, this hypothetical person in Mexico called Maria, and it's detailed. It has sections about an overview of her background, that she's of a certain age and advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. You go into some of the goals she has of using technology and some of the threats specifically that someone in her situation might encounter, sharing private information and dealing with fraudulent sites, malware, webcam activation, gets really specific. And then also talking about some of the strengths she has. She's comfortable with technology and she has developed ways to work around accessibility programs to accomplish tasks. So these are really rich personas. It's much more than just you know a quick bullet point that someone might be familiar with in like a whiteboarding session. They're they're really developed and really thought out so that people can really try to get in the mindset of someone who might be in that situation. Yes, and I will say that all of these the personas that are featured on the website are are trainer developed or developed by end users themselves, and so. Again, it's not a specific person, but it is an accurate representation of a particular community. And so I think, again, that's just it's so valuable, even as, as developers think about new tools or about new features, um, it's really helpful for them to understand you know, what the person on the other side of the phone or the computer looks like 
and kind of their skill set so that they are, are considering those things when they're designing and when they're developing. So anyone out there who's working on an open source project or a project at your company, these personas are incredibly useful. Um, like I said, we'll link to them, but there's like over a dozen of them. So even just taking a couple minutes to familiarize yourself with some of these could definitely provide a lot of value. So I am wondering, you had mentioned that the UX fund, this vehicle for providing funding to the trainers and the developers of these tools, has gone through a couple of rounds. And I know that the Usable Tools Project just completed the second round of UX fund. What are some of the companies and organizations and developers who were approved for funding this round? Yes, so this last round, we were working with folks, again, who had been somehow involved in the Usable Project. So it was a bit of a limited solicitation this round. We did continue our partnership with Mailvelope and specifically focused on, on improving the, the workflow of the file attachment, encrypted file attachment. He also, Thomas, did a complete rebrand of the tool. And so that was really exciting. That just uh, rolled out, I believe, a month or two ago. So if you are familiar with Mailvelope, uh, be worth a, a quick visit again, just to, to see how it's changed even in the last few months. We also worked with XC, which is a password manager. And so a lot of the onboarding examples that I gave um, and the documentation examples that, that all was related to, to XC. We also worked with Orbot, um, which is a Guardian project tool. And we've worked with Guardian quite a bit in the past and, and hope to continue that, that collaboration as well. Um, and then we also worked with SecureDrop during this last round. So those were the, the four specific tools. Outside of that, we did have agreements with, again, the, the two UX and accessibility organizations. So OK Thanks and Accessibility Lab. So in that case, it was instead of providing funds directly to the tool teams, we were instead providing funds directly to the intermediaries who could then work with a larger number of tools. So OK Thanks supported KeepSXC as well as Guardian Project throughout the life of their, their project. And Accessibility Lab, as I mentioned, they did the, the full accessibility audits for all four of the tools this round. The last two tools you had mentioned, Orbot and SecureDrop, can you give just a little bit more explanation for those? I'm less familiar with those tools. Just quickly, I will give you about SecureDrop. So SecureDrop essentially allows journalists to connect anonymously and safely with their sources. It's a great tool. In their case, um, since they don't accept U.S. government funding, we actually partnered or contracted directly a designer to work with them. Ah, interesting. So this is one of those needs to get creative, not only in terms of where the funding come from, but in this case, the actual recipient couldn't accept the funding for whatever reason. And so instead of giving them money, you were able to hire someone to work with them. Exactly. Yes. Ah, very neat. Also an example of they were previously working with this designer. So it wasn't an introduction that we had to make. It was simply they came to us saying, we've already identified this person. We have an existing relationship with her and she knows the tool. And so we were able to, to again, just support in, in that way. So that was SecureDrop. And for Orbot, Orbot is an application. I believe it is just an Android application. And it allows, well, it uses Tor to reroute browser traffic. Tor for Android. Very neat. I'll have to check that out. Like I said, I wasn't familiar, but the fact that it's already focusing on usability and things like that is just more encouragement to go and check out these tools. 
Yes, yes. And the folks over at Guardian, they're always great at, at focusing on usability and engaging with these at-risk users. And so we're always big fans of, of their initiatives and their tools. So you had mentioned that the projects that were working with usable tools in this latest round of UX Fund had some prior relationship and there was a bit less solicitation. So I'm curious, what is the future of usable tools looking like? Is there going to be another round for UX Fund? And if someone listening has an open source tool that might be providing to some of these at-risk communities, is there a chance for them to get involved? Of course. I will answer the, the first question first because it's the easiest. We're always looking for, for new partnerships, both on the trainer side as well as the tool side. So if anyone is interested from the trainer standpoint, if you want to be connected to a developer, sometimes it can be difficult to, to make those first introductions and, and to make those connections. So Usable is happy to be that intermediary. So you can reach out. We also are always looking for new tools. Um, and those can be tools that are, are self-recommended. So if they want to identify themselves, but also if it's if you're an end user and there's a particular open source privacy and security tool that you use on a daily basis or your community uses and you'd like to see improvements, please flag it for us. You can contact us at connect at usable.tools. Both sides can email that same account and we will either make those introductions or, or take that feedback and, and try and move forward with it. Fantastic. And is there going to be another round for UX Fund in terms of getting funding for some of these tools? I know that the second round is just recently completed and there's ongoing work there, but what does the larger future of the project look like? Yes, no, it's a great question. We are, as you mentioned, just closing the, the second round now, and we are hoping to launch a third round most likely next year. I don't have the exact timeline just yet as our, our funding just came through. So we're in the process of, of building out the full timeline now, but we are very excited to announce that we will be continuing this, this UX and accessibility work in, in the future years here at Internews, and it will still be branded usable. So you can continue to follow the website at usable.tools, as well as our Twitter, which is usable underscore tools. Again, on, on both of those channels, we'll be sure to announce the next UX fund. And, and the hope is that that, that fund or that uh, solicitation will be open. And so any tools can apply. Um, really, the, the only criteria are that it is an open source privacy and security tool. The grant would have to be focused on usability and accessibility improvements. And we would highly prefer or require even that folks are engaging with at-risk users at, at some level. And I'll say at-risk users or users with disabilities. Are there any restrictions for the type of open source license? I know there's a lot of healthy debate around which is the best license to use in different situations. Is that something that Usable Tools takes into account for projects that might want to partner in some way? That is not something that we have, have run into thus far. I won't say that it won't be an issue in the future, but I think, yeah, for us, it's just open source. Um, it also doesn't matter paid or, or unpaid, um, but open source, as in the code, is, is freely available. And so it sounds like if anyone has any questions, certainly the, the best approach here would be to get in touch and start a conversation and see where things go. And you can take it from there, introduce them to some resources and, and see what comes out of it. Yes, no. And, and as always, check out our, our website and, and the Twitter. We try and stay active on those two channels and, and make sure that we're posting updates. So I think that's a great first place to start if you have questions or just want to learn more about the project or Internews at large. Our Internews website is also helpful as well. 
But if it is something that, that you're interested in or that folks are interested in and they want to pursue further, I'm always happy to have those conversations. I will talk about this all day. If you are out there and you're working on an open source project in this space, highly encourage you to reach out to Ashley and Usable Tools. Making sure your tools usable by the people it's trying to help is the utmost priority and they can help you do it. And if you are someone who is using one of these tools and it's needs some improvement, it needs some tender love and care, and you're not sure really where to go, reach out there as well. And they can help make an introduction or recommend you next steps. So Ashley, you had mentioned the channels that are good for people to contact you on. You just want to reiterate that for folks. It sounds like Twitter and your blog are primary places to go. Yes, yes. Our website just at usable.tools and our Twitter handle at usable underscore tools. And then if you want to reach out via email, you can reach us at connect at usable.tools. Lots of people and tools. And Ashley, before we sign off for today, I always like to ask guests to summarize in their own words as a quick takeaway for folks. How are you moving the ball forward on usable security and privacy? Yes, I'll, I'll go back to my, my favorite phrase of usable is really about making sure that at-risk communities have a voice in the design and development process. By including them in that process, we're hoping to make tools more usable for end users. Fantastic mission. I support it, and I hope people who are listening to the episode today do as well. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yes, thank you. I did as well. You can find the show notes for today's episode by heading to allthingsoff.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you'd like to support the show, I would really appreciate a rating or a review in iTunes. I personally read all of the reviews over there, and they really help others to discover the show. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next new episode in two weeks.